Welcome back, everybody. This is... Oh, see? I do it every time. <laughs> this is Geology on the Rocks, and I am your host, Geolo James the Geologist. Jeez, we're already starting off on a bad start. And Brian. <laughs> Brian Baggins here. Brian Baggins. And so the title of today's episode is Tentacle Optics of the Inept Closet Cat, a concepts title. <laughs> so We'll be talking about... <laughs> Uh, if you're uh, if you're a scientist, you'll figure that out. What we'll be talking about. So there are anagrams in there. So if you know, you can let us know. And on the line with us too, we have Dr. Dale Simpson Jr. And I'm super excited about this. So he's an American anthropological archaeologist who centered most of his research on Polynesian culture, but more specifically, his research is focused on ancient interactions of the people on the island of Rapa Nui. Did I say that right, Dr. Simpson? You nailed it, nailed it. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. okay. Or otherwise known as Easter Island. And then what he has done, I'm, I, I'm not going to speak for him, but he uses geology to answer questions about archaeology and anthropology. He has also been a host on the History Channel's Found, which is amazing. <laughs> and then also he's contributed to Science Channel's What on Earth?, and he is currently on his 11th year at DuPage University. I will let you go from there. Dale? Very cool. Well, uh, hello to all the listeners out there. Uh, thanks for joining this uh, very cool uh, podcast or, or launch of information. I like the idea of anagrams. That's pretty sweet. So uh, I, I always start out my chats by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, both past and present. Uh, we all stand on the shoulders of the sh now. I'm now I'm starting off well. Look, look, look this is a, uh, on, on the shoulders of giants, and I'm I'm really uh, in my area. We have where I'm at currently. I'm I'm in Chicago. I've spent the last nine months on Rapa Nui, where I do my work. So I always want to honor those ancestors that, that live there, the Polynesian ancestors, but also the the local indigenous groups of of my state in Illinois here, uh, the Illini, the Potawatomi these groups have come before us and I'm, I'm honored to continue their trail. I think, I think in short, I, a great, great introduction. You know, I, I use a little geoarchaeology, so it's just sort of a, a term. Uh, what we're interested in geoarchaeology is still questions of the past, but we're using patterns found in the, the geological record about humans. How do they pick different types of stones to use? Uh, were they miners of the past? Were they geologists in the past? Well, how did, how did they see rocks. I mean, obviously, we have a very mm -hmm. scientific view today, um, but I found with a lot of my research, the, the people of Rapa Nui were, were real geologists. And for those that don't know, Rapa Nui is the, the famous island that has the big um, moai or statues that represent ancestors. Uh, and, and that material that was used to make uh, the moai, it's called uh, topolapoli. It's actually a hylotuft. It's a type of ash oh, okay. that it cools very quickly when it, um, it, it meets water. So the, the, why, why I start with this, because it's the weirdest thing. Rapa Nui is probably the most, I would argue, in the Pacific, one of the most geologically diverse islands. We had about 100 volcanic activities that created the island. And we can, we can from there argue that we have maybe 100 different types of rocks that were created through the process from the magma chamber to forming out to come out the lava, and then all of the, the processes of eating away the rock that mm. the island has gone through in the last 800,000 years of its sort of geological history. So I think that, that this island is a perfect chat for your, your podcast, because I think we can get at a lot of information through about, about the island itself, about its own geology, but then how do humans have relationships with geology? 
uh, and that's hopefully something we can we can talk about and inform our, our listeners today. Yeah, that sounds. See, I mean, that's very elegant. <laughs> okay, I think that's a wrap. Like, good job, guys. That was yeah. a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so that's 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 awesome. So I guess yeah. So today. I guess we're going to be talking about podcasts, uh, not podcasts, geez, man, it's, we usually do this in the evening over a glass of whiskey. That's why it's called geology on the rocks. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it kind of calms, yeah, so it kind of calms the nerves. So, uh, just an outline. So yes, we're going to get into the, the geology and the research that, uh, Dale has done on Rapa Nui. But so we're going to talk about plate tectonics, uh, just an outline of how this is going to go. So you're a little bit more like, what's going on here? So we're going to just do the introduction of plate tectonics, talk a little bit about Alfred Wegener and his idea and the evidence that he used, because he used what he saw as evidence to kind of uh, build out this theory of continental drift. And then how he was kind of laughed at in the scientific community, because he didn't really, ha he had a really weak mechanism for why he was all doing it. And then we can bring it together with Harry Hess and uh, how he kind of, his research when he was in the Navy, mapping the seafloor kind of gave birth to the idea that the seafloor spreading that kind of revitalized the continental drift theory. And then just, we're going to briefly talk about how once it kind of formulated the different types of boundaries and what that means, and then the, all the things that it can explain. And then we'll just do a, a, a quick question, and then we will talk about Dale's experiences with the sciences, if that sounds all right to everybody out there. And then we'll conclude it with another uh, edition of That Freaking Rocks. We'll talk about a little bit about music. So, okay, plate tectonics, right? So it's kind of a, uh, when we think about theories, right? So this is kind of like a new concept, I mean, relatively speaking, so... There's much older theories like the theory of gravity, right? So, but it's been expanded on with the theory of relativity. But in the the idea of plate tectonics, it's a kind of new theory since like the 1960s is basically when it kind of all gelled together, and it was the first. It was when it, yeah, when it was accepted. Yeah, um, yeah. It's weird to think that because we grow up going to you know elementary school, and it's like, hey, here's the Earth, and they all everything seems to fit together in this puzzle, but. I remember being in paleontology and Dr. Nestel, he he's like, hey, like, you know, I was there when all this debate was happening. And it was if you thought plate tectonics or seafloor spreading or anything was a thing that you were kind of an idiot and you <laughs> were an outcast. And so it's just it's strange that not that long ago, less than 100 years, this yeah. this was in debate. Yeah, and it's really the first unifying theory in geology, too. So each, they had all had their own little, I guess, kind of where you would study, but this kind of brought geology together as a whole because it answers so many questions. So I guess let's backtrack a little bit and talk a little bit about Mr. Wegener. I mean, yeah. Yeah, so the German meteorologist, poor guy. If you don't know about Alfred Wegener, he basically was a meteorologist and a geophysicist, I believe, right? He did explorations yeah, yep. throughout the world, and he made findings, and do you want to you wanna bring anything up? Well, it, I, I think I would just come in here and say, you know, this, this is a real, uh, a real with, with his work, you know, you put 50 years into something, 50 years of observation, you have to find a way to organize it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that you know his his more some of his more famous books there that came out there the the, the 1915 book the origins of the continents and oceans mm. that's a classic read right there just to understand 
him at that time, which is a hundred years ago. Let's put that in context. Hundred and five yeah. years ago. Yeah. Uh, it, it's sort of like it, it's sort of the Darwin theory of, of that time. You know, Darwin had to spend that five years abroad in that boat and cruise around and really understand what he was seeing as at a time was going to be evolution. You know, that, that, that framework isn't there. So I think plate tectonics is a great way to see how science really works. Yeah, and I, th- and I think it's interesting that you brought up Darwin, too, because much like Alfred Wegener, right? So his theory of, uh, you know, the origin of species with uh, Darwin, it had its own, what's the word I'm looking for? So it didn't, it, it had its flaws, too, much like, so the mechanisms, sure. I believe. So, I mean, each one had their own shortcomings, and it seems like uh, generations afterwards, you know, it's the continued work of it that, that brings it all together. Yeah, I think anytime you you're the one to introduce something, I mean, someone someone somewhere is going to make it their job to to just drill holes in what you're <laughs> what you're presenting. And luckily, he's had people, you know, that we've like Marie Tharp and me and people like that that they found evidence of it and they were able to continue his work. So I I think it's really beautiful that scientists do piggyback off of each other. It's it's not this ego boosting thing that sometimes is presented to the public. Absolutely. Good point. So, Good uh, point. Uh, so you want to let's briefly talk about some of the evidence that he cited. So, as a scientist, uh, the the types of things you you briefly uh, touched on it earlier, Brian. Like, so I I remember one of the first times I looked at the globe, and I'm like, hey, look at South America and Africa, right? So they look like <laughs> they they fit together, right? And that's about you know, I mean, I'm sure everyone looked at the map and they're like, well, yeah, I mean, that's I don't know if it's coincidence that they all look like that, but so Africa. And South America look like they fit. But what he did is he reconstructed all of the continents together to where they kind of all fit together. And it, and he termed that supercontinent Pangea. That's a, a fun word. Spelling Pangea. P-A-N-G-A-E-A. So, but from there... Uh, the supercontinent kind of the word I'm looking for. It uh, it made sense when you talked about the fossil distribution and then also the rock types that you saw on the different continents that you do today, such as that mountain belt, right? So that's yeah. uh, on the Appalachian Mountains is the same as right. the rock assemblages on the west coast of Africa and then the Caledonia Mountains up north of there in Europe, right? So it that suggests that the that all the continents were once together. Right, so then you have that the the fossil distribution. Yeah, I, I I always remember my classic, you know, the classic Pangea map, and they have all the different type of dinosaurs, you know, that would be located, and then you see the similar species, even though today's map shows where they're at, but the species are identical between that, you know, where the nose of sort of uh, Africa or South America fits into Africa, you know, that little nose bit there of Brazil. So in there, I remember seeing all the different dinosaur types and always even asking myself, why, you know, why is there so much similarity of that, that fossil record right there, that sort of paleontological record? Yeah, and just uh, in and, such and, a narrow spot, too, right? So, like, why was yeah, there exactly. a greater distribution of that certain— so, so That should be it right there. That should be the question, but why is that pattern like that? And because, you know, before three billion years ago, when the, the, the activity starts to move around, that was probably a really hotbed for, for sort of speciation. Absolutely. One thing that really speaks to me is the floral fossils, so the plants and everything on Africa and South America. You have some preservation there, and to me, that's that's very indicative of what the climate was at the time. And the fact that those two places, now separated by an ocean, show similar climates and regions 
of different types of plant growth, then that I agree, like the dinosaur thing, and but the plants that they have to fit together. There has to be a, a reason that you don't see one type of environment versus another in the fossil record at that point. Yeah, yeah so, I probably j- jumbled that up, but oh no, it's okay. No, because like with that, right? So if you think of England, they have a whole bunch of peat, right? And if you think about it, the environment in which coal is made, it needs to be in a tropic environment, right? And that's up north. Right. So up in England, they have a whole bunch of this uh, swamp type material. And then also right in the middle of Africa and Australia, you have this glacial deposit. So you have all this glacial till. And then what do we know about like those environments now is that that's near the equator. The, the, the two pieces don't add up what, to what you're saying. The, I guess more of the, the environment or the, oh, what's the word? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> climate. There you go. Climate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just... Paleo climate. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, it's it it you it just it it makes it makes a lot more sense if the if it was all together at one point than try to explain it now. But what was interesting, what I was going to bring up earlier when it came to the the fossil distribution, I was so I've my kids they're at home right now, right? So they're they're learning online, and they were talking about the kangaroos in Australia and the marsupials, and they went through all the marsupials and how they thought that it originated just in Australia because it's only where that they're at. But then it goes, well, that's not technically true. So up until like a couple of years, I don't know if it was a couple of years ago because I was doing my thing over here, but they brought it to being like, well, they think that it actually, they all originated in South America. The only, I believe, uh, marsupial in North America is the possum. So yeah. that's kind of weird that just even in along, you know, just things that kids can see, like the kangaroos, puss, the koalas, those are all marsupials, right? But there's only one type of marsupial in North America. So it would mm, stand, yeah. stand to reason that why? Why is there only one type of marsupial here in the Americas? That's a great yeah. question. Why? I was going to come back a little bit to just that we, you know, we're, what we're really talking about here is, you know, paleobotany. We're talking about for, for that example in I mean, you, you look at that, that group of Wallacea. So another favorite where you guys like to say Pangea, my other favorite one is Gondwana. Gondwana. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. That's another yeah. great one. You know, just to pull out a great trivia answer right there. Just Gondwana, whatever it is, Gondwana. <laughs> All right, let's put it out there. But, you know, what, what we have, you know, we have at the end of the, the Pleistocene, 1.6 million years ago to the start of the Holocene, 10,000 years ago, you know, we have radical changes of sea levels, sea levels moving up and down. Uh, temperatures are are changing, and what we're seeing around 65,000 years ago is that the area of Wallacea, which is sort of between uh, island Southeast Asia and what will be, you know, uh, Australia, Papua New Guinea, that's mm. pretty much separated by the Great Land Wallacea or Waterland. That the the famous you know naturalist Alfred Wallace and he said, why do we have mammals on what will be called Sunda, and why do we have marsupials in Sahul, which is Papua New Guinea and, and, and Australia. Well, the reason why is that they were separated because that was sort of a biogeographical barrier, and it didn't allow oh, yeah. it. So once the speciesization happened and Godwana was together, those species were sort of mingling together. But as Wallacea expands, creates this land bridge, or excuse me, this land barrier, you know, there's no more mammals that can cross in that species into that line. And then Australia and Papua New Guinea has this very, you know, really weird sort of flora and fauna situation. 
you look at New Zealand, which was also part, it breaks away a little bit later, and New Zealand has nothing toxic or venomous on their island. But hmm. but Australia, you know, you look in the bush, there's 14,000 things that will kill you just by looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> they had a different evolutionary uh, a trail. And that, that when we talk about humans as well, that, that also shows because we see species like um, Homo erectus in Java that couldn't make the push through Wallacea. We see the famous hobbit species, ah, uh, yeah. Floriensis, that also makes its way to the Flores Island but does not push into Australia and Papua New Guinea. What we ultimately need is humans with our thick brains and our ability to have you know ancestors pushing on through. So I think ultimately when we deal with this type of you know paleo species, it's really interesting because it, it, it tells us about changing environments the movement, migration, immigration. I really like to understand that long-term perspective of, of the world because it lets us, lets us better, figure out better what we are as humans in it. So I, very cool that someone's thinking, you know, how do how do these one-off species, marsupials, how do they get in these other areas, you know? And, and that's that's really important for us to understand. Exactly. And, it's, and, and I thought, because he's in second grade, and then I was just like, hey, because they started talking, I was like, it's Pangea. <laughs> they started talking about like all the all the continents were together, and I was like Pangea. I was like Alfred Wegener. I was like we're having a talk like this go. on Friday. <laughs> so it kind of it it's, it was just I, I found it cute, and it was it was a sign that this had to this episode had to happen. Nice. Then I guess so. We've talked on all of what he used. So back in the 1900s too, to even compile all that data, I think is quite right. remarkable in itself, especially as a German meteorologist. I I find just that he reminds me of you, Dale. Like he just was a, a a world traveler and just curious about how things worked. It seemed like, it seems like you're awesome. you're you're all over the place too. Like right, so the Rapa Nui, and then with that show Found, you were I don't even know how that works. You were just back and forth throughout the United States, going to different places, looking at stuff. Yeah, that that was you know and that was the middle of my PhD as well, and so I was in Australia at the moment. But you know my work's on Rapa Nui. My son lives in the south of Chile. But my family and friends and everyone's in Chicago, so it, 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 oh man, it's been. You should see my air miles; you'd be pretty impressed. But <laughs> I think I think that just like you know, and I would never compare myself to some of these scientists at the moment. But you, you have you have these individuals that have a, a great desire to learn more about the world. That's my strength, you know. I, I never, my mom; she's a genealogist, you know, so she's constantly studying our family roots and where she digs in the paper trail. I'm sort of digging in the dirt trail. So we're both at, we're both interested in the past, but there's multiple records that you're after to better understand the past. Um, I think that you know with with Wagner's work, he he had to do that, and he didn't have the framework at the time to put this all together. He's making these general observations, he's creating hypotheses, but the thing is, he's not really a top-down deductive scientist because this theory did not exist. Yeah. That's what's cool yeah. about it. He's building theory. And that's some of the hardest thing to do. You know, when people say I have a theory, I get a little upset. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> you, you have an idea. <laughs> you have an idea. Hypothesis. You have inference, right? You picked up data points. You're 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 you're, you're formulating how you're going to work. So, in our very hypodeductive way, in in a, a sort of Western science, you know, you you work from that hypothesis down. Now, I'm not saying that sort of non-deductive work. Sometimes you go from your patterns and your and your evidence. And you form something. You need inductive and deductive types of science. They're both important, right? Yeah. We're just more used to the, the way we learn in school, form a hypothesis, makes observation, do a test, 
you know, what's the results? Here's my di- here's my discussion. Here's future directions. It's just this known sort of pattern. But for individuals like Darwin, for individuals like um, Wagner, that form didn't really exist. So I, I completely agree with you. Think about how do you organize that? You've got all these observations. You're putting forth your hypothesis about how at one time the world's together based on the fossil record, based on, as you're saying, based on the, 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 the fauna record and the flora record. Um, it's pretty impressive, and I don't think that everyone has that ability to, to do that, and that's fine. Um, you know, not, not everyone is – we need specialization. But when you see some of these great thinkers of their time, and this is before Wikipedia. This is before they're, yeah. they're going online. Yeah. <laughs> and they probably have to test themselves. Um, so I, I, I always love seeing how theory develops. And to me, plate tectonics is a way in my courses that I teach how theory develops, how you go from hypothesis working into a grand theory, and then that theory needs to be proven over and over and over again in multiple contexts. That's a theory. No one really has a theory unless you're a Darwin or a Wagner, you know, when you get up to that high level of thinking. Uh, and and we're, we're thankful to have individuals like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like, that, that was a good point. Because, um, you know, uh, in my, I'm still kind of early on in my career as a geologist, but definitely earlier on in that I – I would go out, you know, I'm in the field, here's all my notes, this is what I've studied, this is what I know to be in this area, and I would just kind of follow that trend. One of my favorite things to do now is when I go in the field, I pretend like I forget everything. And I know that may be counterintuitive to what a scientist should do, but yeah, and I I look at everything and I'm like, okay, forget everything, And, and really thinking back to Darwin, like, I mean, he just observed different species and why they were different. And he didn't. He 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 started from there, and that's that's one of my favorite things to do is just act like I don't know anything and just observe. And I feel like that's something that we are not taught as much, or at least at like you know at the university James and I went to. It was it was more like, hey, here's here's what it is. If you don't know this, you're you're, you're missing the point. But if you just yeah. stop, slow down, observe, like don't think about it fitting into something that you've already had to learn. I I, I it's a beautiful thing that that I really admire about these, these theory generators. Absolutely. And, that, and that's a great point. And you can come into some in anthro in the social sciences here, and we talk about the postmodern critique a lot. You, you know, like you don't see things as they are. You see things as you are. And, and then okay. that starts, you know, changing your ability to be objective, to be holistic. To, to, and I like it. I, I have a, something similar. I assume everything is natural until proven cultural. Everything to me, people come up, oh, look at this rock. It must have been made by humans. And my first, my, my, I don't go into the human line until I think, oh, what are the natural processes that could create this, right? Yeah, what, sure. what are the ways formed through, you know, petrogenesis or, you know, sort of the decomposition of stone through time or what, whatever process we want to talk about in a post-depositional phase. But at the same time, people want to make that quicker jump to be to say it's human. It's just funner. It's, oh, it's more fun. Like, oh, yeah, look at it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, their, it's their theory, right? <laughs> there it is. So it's, it's, but again, I just I just assume everything is natural until proven cultural. And I think that sort of helps. So I, I, I can appreciate what you're saying, Brian. Uh, you know, we're two different sciences there, but we're, we're trying to go at it with the same way. We I do have some theory that I, I help me fill out, and we always go back and look at past publications and work that's been done. You, you never want to regurgitate someone else's work. You know, that's the worst thing you can do. You want to build onto this corpus of knowledge that is the scientific record. 
So I, I do think there, we have that issue, and especially American sort of scientists, we're very individualistic, right? Mm. So we, you, you can see other groups, other cultures, they study much more in larger labs and, 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 and sort of larger collective projects. Most of the Americans, archaeologists that I see that go to other places, they tend to be like, they tend to take over a little bit. <laughs> they, tend oh, okay. to, you know, they, 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 they tend to they tend to sort of stretch out a little bit more because they're comfortable with being individual, where other groups are a little more group based. So again, there's there, there's tons of lines in here. So that that's my my cautionary tale. You know, don't see things. Try to see things as they are, not as you as you are. And that's the hardest thing about doing science is cutting yourself out of your research. It's very very hard. Yeah, I, you can definitely get married to it and try to make it make take out your biases. I guess that's the the biggest. Oh. Woo. Y'all are y'all are so good. I like talking to y'all. <laughs> oh, it's, but it's just a ping off. We're the triangle here, and we were coming from yeah. different angles. Yeah. No, I, I love it. I was just saying we're a triangle here, right? And we're both we're coming in different views of the, the the record. We look at different records, but our goal is still the same: is to give an objective, fact-based, hypothesis-tested conclusion about the data that we're looking at. And, and, you know, you, you can have a variety of theory backing you up or a variety of studies backing you up. But at the end of the day, you really have to create a conclusion that either supports, denies, proves something, you know, or, or, or puts something future or puts something forward for future work. That's why most anthropology papers, the last paragraph is always a future direction. What do we do with this to move forward? Uh, and I think that that's, that's really important to keep that ladder of science going. No, absolutely. Well, just to bring on that too. And I, and I think that too, also like people think that science always has to prove something, but I, I feel like what is it called? It's the null hypothesis, right? So what's not true is almost equally as important as what is true. Outstanding. Definitely. Right. So, I mean, like, so then it just shows like, Hey, then we don't need to follow this rabbit trail. Yeah. It creates a, it creates bound. It points you in a direction, you know, i recently have been mapping flood deposits and so i did i caught myself i was like oh, i really want to find this you know late holocene deposit and i everything checked off on this one uh, outcrop and i was studying it and i was i, I wanted it i wanted that to, whether or not it was because it was 110 outside and i was getting hot and like I, i'm ready to go kind of thing but then i found the mesh wire in this outcrop and so that put it at maybe at most a hundred years old. <laughs> and so it was, I was kind of bummed out. I was like, man, I, I was wrong. But that data is still so useful because now I can say, Hey, like this is a flood on record. This is what it characteristically looks like. So it's not that, Hey, it's, I, I really messed up and that, you know, it's, it's not that it's you're observing, you use that data and it creates a boundary for you in what your, what, what your discussion will be. Nice. Yeah. I like that. That's slick. It was slick. I, I did topple down that outcrop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, luckily, you had the little wire there to help you out. Tie back up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, the, I'm in the same boat with some of that stuff, too, because in science, a no, I, I love your answer there, because a no answer is actually science, right? It's easier to prove something didn't exist than it did. Yeah. So I think that you made a good point about the no hypothesis. You know, that's that needs to, we need to understand that that's the basis to start all the testing. So I ultimately know my null hypothesis is going to be proven wrong, but I'm still putting it out there as my first stepping stone, my first lily pad in theory building or, or information collecting. So once I have my null hypothesis, I can start testing and then form my H1, H2, H3 all the way down the line 
Um, you know, you don't. So, but again, it's a circular thing where you know, if, if, if one of the three hypotheses doesn't pan out, I re, I, I, I reset. I think about the parameters of my study. I look for bias, whether it be overt or hidden. I try to eliminate those so I can better reform my hypothesis to test again. So. I, I, I agree with you. I think in, in, in archaeology, too, sometimes a no answer just gives us as much information as a yes answer because you can still work from that and deduce down, okay, because I know this and this is a no, this means this affected behavior like this. And I think that that, mm. that really much helps you build your, your sort of base of knowledge to go forward to ask more informed questions. And that's what science should always be doing after each round of investigation. Our questions should be more and more dialed in. They should be sharper, and they should be really focused on the population and, and sample size that we have. It's, it's well said, well put. Yeah, I yeah like that. it's like refinement. Um, it's, it's a clue on the way to the summit, really, is what, what it is. And um, oh, it's, it's, almost, it's almost a rush. Like, you, you at least got some data. All right, now I know. Now I can – I know how I want to go up this – maybe next 10 feet of the mountain. It's perfect. I like it. Nice. Nice. Okay. So uh, then with that, yeah. So that, that was Alfred Wegener. So I know when it comes to him, he was kind of laughed out of the, the scientific community, right? So, I mean, if you put out those bold mm-hmm. claims, like you said earlier too, Brian, how everyone in it's because his ideas were contrary to popular belief at the time. And then he was kind of laughed out of the scientific community and the, actually the whole idea or the premise of the hypothesis of continental drift actually like went into obscurity for a long time. It wasn't until again, the 1960s until our understanding technology also improved. So like scientific technology greatly advanced uh, the geosciences as well. Then it kind of revitalized it back in the sixties. But I, I know the idea of the, the idea of, or the hypothesis too, I believe it was what Arthur Holmes kind of back in the thirties, uh, right around the time that I think Wegener died, started coming up with the idea of this thermal, thermal convection that happens in the mantle and just <clears throat> not to get like too scientific for the people out there. So just simply put, when we think of, you can think of thermal contraction as materials deep within, they heat up, they're going to lose their density and then they're going to rise, right? And then when they rise, they're going to cool down, and then it sinks back. So it's this uh, this transfer of heat, right? But they still didn't really have an understanding of what that really meant until, in my notes, I just wrote, it started gaining traction in the 60s when scientists started to begin to gain a better understanding. Is A lot of it comes to, like, understanding the ocean basins, and the mid-ocean ridges, and the in the in the ocean ridges, uh, as you had that spreading apart, depending on the Earth's magnetic field at the time, whenever the iron and the minerals, magnetite or whatnot, uh, they cool in alignment with the magnetic field of Earth. So that's also a good line of evidence, recent to help prove uh, Wagner's idea of the continental drift. So I think that, oh, then also the island arcs and trenches too also helped. So that's kind of the idea of how it became to a theory. So once all of that happened, then Harry Hess came around uh, with his mapping in the of the ocean floor during World War II, I believe. Yep. yep. Yeah. They started coming up with their own ideas to kind of ask these questions, and then they're like, oh, my goodness, Mr. Alfred Wegener, you were right. We're sorry, <laughs> sir. <laughs> Yeah, for real. <laughs> that's, that's, that's common too in anthropology. I mean, in paleoanthropology as well, when they were coming up with, you know, the, the first trying to put the fossil record together of, of, of us as, as hominids in the past, you know, 
some of the first ideas of the speciesization, especially in South Africa, those the scholars that were showing showing actual physical evidence of speciesization, you know, they were laughed at, you know, and, and it wouldn't be the 30, 40 years later when someone else goes and fills out a bit of the record that, you know, in hindsight, you're like, well, that guy was right. You know, he, he yeah. but he just didn't, not all the tools were there. That's why science is constantly changing. You have to keep doing science. You, you, you have to stay after it. You just, so I, I, I do feel bad for those individuals that didn't get the credit that they're due, but now they're getting it in a, in a greater way. They're going to be remembered forever. Yeah. So I, 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 you see this throughout all, all fields from anthropology to geology, but that's part of theory building. That's exactly it. You have to have those that, as you said, drill holes in it and, 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 and probe and, 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 and do core sample of a theory to see what's at the heart of it. And as, as those core, those holes were slowly getting plugged up with more data showing that the, the hole makers were, were ultimately wrong, that's how theories are born. They have to be tested. They have to be shown to be um, useful and working in multiple sectors uh, and, and repeated. And, that, and that's the whole thing of, of doing good science. So I know the work that I do for the tail off, if someone's going to analyze my stones in the future and and the geology that we've analyzed, the goal should be we're going to have the exact same readings of, you know, silica and and the elements Mm -hmm. we're after and the trace elements and the isotopes. Technically, I should have the exact same measurements in 10 years. So that's something I will do. In 10 years, when we have the new technology out, I'm going to reanalyze my samples. I'm going to use the newest to say, okay, 10 years ago, we had this pers- this sort of analytical precision, we had this accuracy, but in 10 years, those things should increase. Uh, and I think a little different from geological deposits, cultural deposits, you know, they're, 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 not, um, they're not renewable. Once they're gone, they're gone. So we have to, for me, it's better protection because in 10 years, we're going to have technologies that are going to be so much better for, for analysis. Yes. So, you know, longitudinal science is super important. You have to go back to your samples. You have to reanalyze with new techniques to make sure you're doing the science part of, 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 of replication. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So then I guess to kind of talk about the, the idea of uh, plate tectonics and then the, the plate boundaries, I think that would be a good segue to start talking about Rapanui, right? Because it's right there on cool. one of those, on those tectonic boundaries right there, right? It is. Yeah, it is. Because I'm guessing um, some of these listeners may be an intro geology class that you're teaching. Yeah. So you have uh, three basic main types of plate boundaries. And one is a divergent boundary, and it literally means to move away from one another. Yeah, so you just put your thumbs pointing away from each other and move your hands apart. Right. Human interaction, right? Like, oh, there's a rift in the family, a rift in the relationship. That's what the, the the crystal plates are doing there. So the oceanic crust separates. And an important thing about that type of boundary is when that happens, new oceanic crust is formed there. And so that was that was the main thing about the seafloor spreading and the fact that, hey, this the crust is mobile. It's it's moving at the, you know, mid ocean like uh, a, a rift. And so new basaltic crust is created and slowly it moves out towards the outer edges of that plate and what happens then and we can i don't know if i'm talking too much on one thing but oh no that'll get sub, that'll get subducted down below the continental 
uh, margin. And so then that's where all sorts of different rock types can be made. What's cool about uh, rapid, oh God, I can't say it. You're, someone correct me. Nap, Rapanui, Rapanui, I don't know. <laughs> um, you mentioned like that's very diverse geology. And what's cool about that is it's diverse in as far as the volcanics there. So I'm hoping we can touch on that later because we think of diverse stuff. I think of, you know, the Pacific coast of the U.S. where you have all sorts of metamorphism, you have sediment sedimentary rocks you have igneous you have volcanics everything but i'd I'd really like to later touch on the volcanics of that island so i talked about divergent do you want to talk about convergent okay yeah i kind of hinted at it at the end (laughs) yeah i know so uh you have convergent plate boundaries and that's where you have the interactions between the the plates right so it's it's all it's not static so there there's give and take right so where it's being formed uh, you kind of have this slab pushing. So then, depending on the the density of the the type of crust that there is, it's going to depend on whether one's going to be subducted or the other one is going to not be subducted. And subduction just just one plate is going to go beneath the other plate, right? So you're going to have the three types of your convergent plate boundaries, and this is going to be you can think of the the two types of crust. I don't know if we've talked about this. So the the types of crust you're going to have continental crust, and then you're going to have oceanic crust. Continental crust it it has a density of about two point seven. So in the geologically we call it what it's granitic, right? Uh, your granitic continental crust. Versus yeah, your it's, oceanic, it's going to be basaltic. So yep. it's going to be yeah. about three grams per cubic centimeter. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. And then your mantle is a little bit heavier than that. And then that, uh, mm-hmm. we, we can get into that at a different time about the lithosphere and asthenosphere. Right. But that's yeah. what it, it basically breaks down to. But so you have these two different types of uh, densities. So this is going to cause the, the continental crust are going to resist that being subducted. So oceanic crust is going to dive down underneath the oceanic crust. And in the simplest forms, in the three types, you're going to have oceanic, continental, right? So the continental crust is going to stay above and the oceanic crust is just going to go underneath the continental. And then you have uh, your oceanic, oceanic, Right, so that's where two ocean mm-hmm. plates are going to meet, and then the denser one of the two. So usually, typically, the older plate. If it's older, you can think that it's going to be denser because it's further away from that spreading seafloor. But anyway, so it's going to subduct it's cooler, underneath. Yeah. It's going to subduct underneath that, and then both of those are going to actually create this uh, partial melting of the mantle, and you're going to start getting this pooling of the. At a certain point, it starts. Uh, creating magma and that magma is going to rise because it's less dense than the surrounding uh, mantle it pulls and then you get all these different types of rocks and then through the evolution of that magma the last type of convergent is going to be your continental continental and then you can think of this as the alpine himalayas right so you have uh, the the indian plate collided with the eurasian plate and then the younger less dense uh, eurasian plate uh, was thrust upwards and it's kind of the Indian plates kind of just colliding and pushing that up. Um, all are going to be associated with earthquakes and volcanism to a certain, not the continental continental, that's just earthquakes, right, Ryan? Uh, and, sorry, say that again. Oh, I'm just saying, so like the uh, oceanic continental and oceanic oceanic, uh, that's going to be associated with the distribution. You can see the distribution of the uh, earthquakes sure. and yeah. volcanoes. And yeah. Then the, yeah, think of like, um, like 
California, so you have San Andreas, and then even along uh, South America, um, the the, vol- the volcanoes that are there and the earthquakes that are recorded are not just like an accidental. I mean, they're they coincide because of the plate friction and what's flipping, and you know you have all different heat gradients throughout the whole thing, which we definitely don't have to get into because I'm not sure I can explain it <laughs> incredibly well. But yeah, it it that's usually I mean they coincide with each other pretty well. Um, and you're right, like the mountain building, like that's that's very key for like continental continental convergence. So what I think is really cool, if you are familiar with how to work Google Earth, and then you put in the the the, the data points for uh, for earthquakes, like recent earthquakes, or you can look at volcanoes. Like you can see the actual outlines of all the plates. It's really fascinating, especially what I like to do is if you, you can see at the point uh, where the subducting oceanic crust is actually melting and pooling. Because if you then put, if you overlay the volcanoes on top of the earthquake distribution, right, uh, you can see the depth of the, which the earthquakes occurred. And then at a certain point, you start seeing volcanoes such as the Andes Mountains, or you can think of the Aleutian Islands as that island arc. Right, yeah. So you have earthquakes that are happening along that subduction zone, but then a little bit further back where these deep earthquakes are happening, you start seeing these volcanoes, which is, I think, fascinating. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, Coop, I, I love that. That's some good points there because we know, and what, you know, just to slide into the discussion a little bit, where our, with, with Rapa Nui, we really have to deal with three main plates. And we obviously have the main Pacific plate that the, the majority of igneous basalt is created from. And then the Nazca plate, which is being subducted underneath the, the south, more South American Andes plate, and that's what creates those mountains, that subduction. So what we understand from our calculations, basically, is the Rapanui is also next to something called the microplate, the East Island microplate. And it mm. sort of juxtaposition between the Pacific and the Nazca plate. But as the Nazca plate is moving between 2 to 7 centimeters every year, it's slowly being subducted under the, this larger South American plate. So in all reality, one in, in, in geological time, hundreds of millions of years, one day Rapa Nui will be subducted under South America. So, you know, we're, so, you know the I, islands they, in the Pacific, they live and they die. They have a life. Um, they don't last forever. There's a really great Disney Pixar thing called Lava. I don't know if you've seen it. I it was think I have. Check, check it out, but it, it goes through this process of this very proud, high volcanic island that sings his songs, and he's waiting for a, a mate, you know, a partner to come along, but geological time passes. You have different types of processes that is, that are, that's eating this, this island through erosion and, and alluvial flows and wind, but basically he's just about to become extinct, and then there's a nice push on a hot... <laughs> Beautiful girl, and the, the whole story is, you know, I love you too. You know, I love you. <laughs> and it, it, it's a really cute thing, but it shows a little bit of this life and death of, of islands in the Pacific, but that all has to do with that moving plate. So you really, you guys are right. You can't understand Rapa Nui's geology without understanding its geodynamics. Yeah. Um, and that's something I'm sure we can get into with, with, my, with my section there. So. I think that your definitions are spot on. You've given a lot of places of the world where you can actually see these these places happening. But I can see a divergent plate leaving from the Pacific plate, which is the Nazca that's separating. And then on the other end of the plate, that's being subducted underneath South America. 
So I think NASCA gives us a really good understanding of the different uh, plate boundaries and then how that subsequently creates islands in the Pacific. Yeah, and then yeah, is and it, it, Oh, no, go ahead, Brian. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, and that may be something like important. I, I read one of your papers and it like, talked about the different rocks there. And so because you have that, that subduction going on, the partial melting helps change the magma. Like when you melt that, then your magma signature is going to be different, which is why you have different rock types around that's that right. island. So we could definitely touch on that later. But um, yeah. I, th I think that's really cool that you illustrated that, hey, it's not – not just an island out there you know it's not just moving in one like direction there's there's um like multiple dimensions of what's going on on that right. island and that's geologically thinking you know there's all mm -hmm. there's all there's ultimately multiple things that are happening you know as, as we'll get into it because i think we have one more i think you guys want to talk a little bit about ocean basins a little bit oh we don't i mean we, I, th I think we have belabored the the, the point of plate tectonics <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> I, then, then you know, I could just, I could just start start off. You know, basically, we just have igneous rocks. You know, we're we're mm -hmm. we're. This is a Pacific plate, and the majority of you know of of the lava, uh, of the magma that becomes lava later. You know, these are all very uh, what we call I I O I B oceanic mm -hmm. igneous faults, and it's a family that we find all throughout the Pacific. You know, the the majority of the plate. What's interesting is Rapa Nui is on that juxtaposition between two plates, and because of that, it probably had a diverse magma chambers, and that's why we think. I mean, we get everything on Rapa Nui from obsidian to very, uh, you know, fine grain uh, Hawaiianite and and and, and uh, Mierganite verm. I mean, there's so much diversity of stone, but it's not only the magma chamber, but it's also the secondary process of things that are breaking down. You know, rocks aren't forever. They they also yeah. weather. They also go through their process of decomposition, although it's much longer than something organic. And we're we're getting really we're getting and and the Rapa and Wheat people were awesome at it too. They were able to see those little differences that would give a rock a harder a harder cortex. They were interested to see well, is this rock easier to carve? Would this rock be better to transport? I mean they. I, I would argue that the Rapanui people were, were geologists in a way of the past. They were ancient geologists, and, and, they, and they found ways to analyze rocks. Now, it's not with a microscope, but I wouldn't doubt they did experimental tests. They threw rocks down. They, they attacked it with their hammer stones. They, they looked at processes of, you know, of reducing stone. So mm -hmm. what it's telling me is that they were, very, they were a very advanced culture, you know, we— I, I hope that one thing the listeners list, figure out is that you know the, the culture did not collapse. They were they were they're still strong. There's about seven thousand people that live on the island today, with fifty percent believing you know saying that they are Rapa Nui, that they have they have heritage of this great Polynesian culture that got them to this island. What we see with Polynesian in general, there's a lot of specialists, boat makers, orators, uh, war chiefs, and I also feel that there's that they have scientists. And these individuals were really important. And think about them. They don't have an overarching theory like plate tectonics. No, not but at they all. Still had, they still had a way to think about and organize their geological knowledge. And I'm slowly reading that record. And again, yeah. it's not written in, in paper. You know, 99% of humanity in our, rec our history is not written on paper. It's all so verbal. We to, yeah. We have to go back into those those types of records. So, um, but no. But needless to say, it's, just, it's a great place to study geology and humanity. You can study a lot of topics there, marine biology, 
you know, endemicism. What's really cool about Rapa Nui, if we're getting in around the geology around the island, is that it's not really a, a place of biodiversity. Um, we are subtropical. It's not your typical tropical Polynesian island that you think of. It's actually uh, south of the, of the tropics. Um, but the fish species around, we have documented about 167 fish species. Now, if you go to a place like Fiji or even Samoa, Hawaii, you're <laughs> dealing nine, 1,000 fish species. Yeah. But what's really interesting in, in, in Rapa Nui is 26% of those 167 fish are endemic. You find them nowhere, nowhere else in the world. So wow. why, why that's important is because the Pacific and these areas of boundaries between plates, they're where life was originally created. So when we look at things like when you look at biologists that are interested in this longer paleobiologists and botanists, what they would argue is that these vents between these plates gave just the right amount of heat that small bacteria and small little uh, creatures could go to this heat, they can warm themselves up, they could use this heat to make adaptations, to be selected, to continue their genes, we'll say, or their ability to reproduce, and they create life. So if we don't have, if we don't better understand plate tectonics, these hot spots, we're not going to understand how life was created. So it's, it's interesting, the very movement of our plate is probably what gave us these heat vents and these, these, mm-hmm. these, these sort of uh, magma vents that life began at. So it's, 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 just, it's a really important point. We have to understand geology and the places of the movement of these plates because that's where we'll better understand life in general. And I always find that pretty pretty mind-blowing. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I think that's one of the like most mind-blowing discoveries, the fact that, hey, like, you know, the Earth and its movement and its heat uh, has allowed bacteria to form, you know, billions of years ago or, you know, millions of years ago. And over time, yeah, yeah, and over time, like even the Cambrian, like you just had all these other organisms that that formed from the long evolutionary periods, and the fact that now we're sitting around on cell phones and talking about this is, is crazy. <laughs> right. It's mind blowing, yeah, <laughs> the, the vastness of it, right? And chemosynthesis, yeah. a wild, yeah. yeah it, it, but that's a good context for for your listeners to think about. You know, that's why it is important to understand these type of, of, of processes because ultimately they they talk about an, an evolutionary timeline that most people it's hard to understand you know it's hard to tell people the earth is 4.5 billion years old you know that's <laughs> in people say well, how do we know that and then you go into the whole thing about comets coming here and asteroids landing and and doing different types of dating techniques on these stones to understand mm-hmm. perhaps the big bang happened and you know, a lot of times it's tough to swallow because people just were, were, were not made to take in new data. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance, right, where everyone yeah. knows new ideas come in. It's really hard for me to think about it. So I couldn't imagine those early investigators that we've talked about, how many daggers were thrown at them, you know, <laughs> and, and, and they had to just keep fighting through. And, 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 and what did they, they keep building up more, more information? You know, they're, they're building up their database. They're trying to get more observations out there. So it must not have been a, a very rewarding process for them. <laughs> no. uh, now we, guys are great, amazing. Where will we be without these first thinkers? But so I, I take that. I take my research with a grain of salt. You know, I wait for the people with their core samples. You know, <laughs> picking and choosing where my where I have faults. But 
I think if you uh, admit what the, the limitations of your study, I think we, we've lost this ability to talk about what are my limitations? What are the things I'm not considering? What variables are beyond my grasp that my sample size is not sort of, uh, of, of talking about? That's when we start doing good science. So that's why those future directions, limitations, you know, that's important to keep building in this ladder of that, that is science. Yeah, and then also I feel like yeah. us as humans too, we're like terrible judges of like scales, if you will. I mean like your cognitive dissonance, right? So I always like to use this as a thought experiment. What's the difference between 1 million seconds versus 1 billion seconds? Good one. Yeah. It's 1 yeah. million seconds is roughly about 12 days, right? So it, you think, okay, well, a million, like there's millionaires, there's billionaires, but a billion seconds is close to 33 years, right? So that's, that's, that's the scale of the difference between like, oh, a million years and uh, a billion years, right? So if you think of it on the terms of seconds, uh, 12 days I mean, versus 33 years. So there's, there's, the, there's that big gap. I mean, that's yeah. great. What a great analogy. I'm writing that one down. That's how <laughs> Geologists, because you guys just have a, a, you even have a deeper time death than humanity does. No, so it, you guys have you have more of a difficult time talking about these long-term scales, you know, compared to what we are in archaeology, which may be two hundred thousand years of humanity. Yeah. So I, I I do appreciate that example. That's very important for your listeners to really settle in and and, and understand. So I mean, Rapa Nui is as an island. It has eight hundred thousand years of history. That since it moved out of the water but this is part of 20 million years 20 30 million years of geodynamic activity to get the ranokau crest that we call the ridge the ranokau ridge which is basically three kilometers to the sea floor right yes. roughly like a huge ice only 500 yeah. meters stick above the island but it goes down to a sea floor that's three three kilometers which is what so that's about, roughly about two miles yeah yeah exactly so you think you you think about how long that process was happening that that magma chamber that breaks through on the uh, on the hot spot that's coming through the crust that slowly builds up. So to me, my my main argument, Rapa Nui is like a big birthday cake, right? And it's it's filled with all these different good layers from chocolate to banana. And and, and my goal is is as an archaeologist is not sometimes to look at the the geological layers of the cake. My job is to look at the cultural layers of the cake. Yeah. But as my research <clears throat> progressed, and I my PhD, I really started to think about, okay, how does this geological cake influence, affect, or um, limit the Rapa Nui people? Because one of the things that's really, you know, I'm always trying to link, I'm trying to always discuss between geology and archaeology. So I apologize if I, I'm going back and forth. It'd be nice if I could layer it out to show you what's the geology they get to the humans. But it's really hard to do that on Rapa Nui because it's what we call, it's a, it's a palimpsest. A palimpsest in the in the back of the day was like a big wax board that the the Romans would use, and they would write on it. It'd be wax, and you would try to erase it like a white whiteboard, but you would still have indentions on it where other people have written from the past that you couldn't completely erase. Uh, so you okay. can imagine the paper that has 40, 40 letters on it. You're going to have a little bit of a jumble. Yeah. On Rapa Nui, some very hard to see all of these layers, the cultural layers, because they overlap. One group decided to reuse a platform or reuse a moai, a statue. Some mm -hmm. other group would recycle house stones to make cave features and gardening features. So, but, but the geology is much easier to understand because it, 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 it is, it is it, the rates of deposition are known. 
We know the type of, of lava that came out. We then can expect what are going to be the, the weathering processes of these stones. So for me, my basis is built on the work of geologists and geochemists. If we didn't have that information, I couldn't do my work. So again, science is a ladder. Science is a cake. Yeah, a lot of a lot of layers we've got to get into to figure it out. And then you can tell those different layers. You can use your archaeology layers because the ingredients, if you will, how you came to with all of this, right, with the the the, the geology layers, that each one has like their own ingredients, right? And that's what you kind of use to. No, great analogy. I love it. I'm I'm interested in the elemental ingredients of the cake. Yeah. That's a, that's, a, that's a great way to you know to break it down. What I'm interested in is to use my tool set, which we'll talk about to analyze um, elements to, to better understand what were the ingredients that we find and I call it the milkshake. What was in the milkshake of that magma chamber? What, were, what, what was inside there? One of the benefits because we're in the Pacific, we already have an idea because other work has been done in the Pacific that shows what should be in this oceanic basalt. Uh, uh, configuration of the of the magma, but Rapa Nui again because it is farther south, it's not dealing with these huge heat indexes like being in tropics. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't have the big speciation and the and the sort of biodiversity and because it's a different land. So therefore, you're going to have other uh, evolutionary processes for humans, but also stone. They're changing radically and differently. So it's just really every island you go to in the Pacific, you really have to, although the roots of the islands are the same, the trunk and the leaves and the branches are different. Yeah. And you really have to, you know, analyze them for, for, for what they are. That's pretty cool. So then how did you yeah. come to 